Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Watch Party Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. I'm Michael. And I'm Jen. And today we are talking about episode five of The Rings of Power. Uh, now, I did a quick poll on Twitter uh, shortly after the episode aired. I wanted to find out where people ranked this episode. And interestingly, they 50% thought this was their best episode. Really? By far, by far, yeah. By a pretty wide, I think it was like uh, episode four was their next favorite which was like I think at 28-30% and then the others kind of fell pretty far behind but actually there was also a sort of a curve where they thought every episode got better than the last like the people who favorited the episode it's like it improved so everyone the consensus and there's like 50 people answered the poll but the consensus was that the show has improved every single episode and that this was their favorite so I thought that was very interesting that is interesting this was a great episode there were some moments in this episode that i was like ah finally we got this moment like galadriel finally shows you know humanity and shows so much range and and this great conversation with halbrand love that that moment that exchange Mm. um and there were some real highlights um but as with every episode that we've gotten from this series uh, there were some, I have my criticisms, but I thought it was a great episode. I thought we really, okay, we're really going somewhere. I'm into all these storylines. Things mm-hmm. are heating up. Things took surprising turns, things I was not expecting at all. Yeah. Uh, confrontations came to a head much sooner or did not come to a head. Um, so I'm sure that you have a lot to say, Michael. I know you do because we were wrong about some things and some things very much surprised me. Yeah, well, and I think we'll just, I think the elephant in the room is the Mithril plot line yes. is the thing that just sort of shook everybody up and people yes. are reacting violently to it. Some people absolutely hate it because it is a big change. And mm-hmm. I don't know big where you change. want to start this episode in terms of talking about things, but that was the one that seems to have grabbed all the, the lore hounds by the throat and it's like it won't let go. They, you know, they, they can't get over it. Um, and I get it because it's very different and it, and it touches on some fundamental themes gets to the core of the original potentially so uh we can get into all that but uh, where do you want to start you want to start kind of right at the beginning let's start at the very beginning yes it's a very good place to start (laughs) yes um yeah i was a big fan of the harfoots sequence Mm -hmm. in this episode i very much enjoyed the song was delightful the walking song yeah the walking song was great i love that they incorporated so much tolkienian language you know away must wander we knew this was a big theme based on the trailers and it's obviously a very you know i mean i'm a sucker for folk songs and Mm, sort of of irish influenced folk songs and we grew up on that music so um, yeah the singing was wonderful so honestly the lyrics could have been awful and and Mm -hmm. i would have still liked it because the music is good uh, I you liked know. it. I love the maps, the use of the maps, like yeah. where they're going and that they, you know, I didn't recognize any of the places, but I could guess where they were going based on the map. That was very right. charming. I'm not sure if I, any of the names that they used, it was like trout something and the... I don't think, I the think they made them were, up. I think they made them up. Yeah. Maybe not. There's the maybe gray they didn't marshes. make up the locations. But. I think the gray marshes are become the dead marshes. That's my guess. Probably, yeah. But I really liked seeing Nori's relationship with Meteor Man develop and the question of, okay, is this guy dark or light? It's still yeah. very pervasive. Who is this man? What is he doing? Oh, the cultists that you see find... Well, before we get to the cultists, let's let's okay. talk about that that first because the, the show does start with Nori and Meteor Man sitting on a rock, and it's a nice mm-hmm. little scene, you know. I loved that they, they scene. They hang out together, you know, it. they're having meals. He's learning how to talk, 
Um, right. and, but the, the, the purpose of this scene is, and it's notable that they start the show with the scene, is mm-hmm. to explore, like, is Meteor Man good or bad? Which is kind of the mystery of this character. More so than, than who he is, mm-hmm. but what he is. Is right. he good or bad? You know, and What is it his seems, nature? It seems that even he does not know, which is really interesting. It's not it's just... It's great. It's fun to watch, too, yeah. because it's... It's not just Mysterious. that there's a language barrier, which I thought at first maybe that was the case. It's that he is genuinely disoriented about like who he is, what's his place right. in this world. Does he? He clearly knows something because he's got this constellation in his mind. He knows what he's searching for. So it's it's a little. I guess I don't know. <laughs> is he fully there in his head and he just has trouble communicating, or does he not know who he is at all? Because well, we see this... him wrestle with that moment where he says, I killed the fireflies. Right, like he's right. realizing, oh, am I a peril? Am I something that to be feared? He's so it's actually... interesting. Does, does he not even understand the concept of death? You know, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. And it may be revealing that he's never encountered death, right? I, um, I guess that's a good point. I mean, you know... It, let's assume he's a Maya from Valinor, they would certainly know about death uh, as a concept. They'd be aware of it, but they wouldn't be experiencing it on the regular. You know, elves Mm -hmm. are immortal in Valinor. It's a paradise over there. People aren't dying. So he's, you know, maybe forgotten what it really is like and what it's about. And, And if you know what something is as an abstract concept, but you have no experience interacting with it, you would fumble around like a bull in a china shop, accidentally killing things, you know, and mm-hmm. that's kind of what he did with the fireflies. Yeah, that precisely. Precisely. So, yeah, I love watching that relationship unfold. The moment where, you know, he freezes his hand, he's soothing his arm. And... What's going on there? Do you have any guesses as to what's going on there? No, I mean, I think that, again, he's so powerful that he's easing his own... What I got from it gathered was he's easing his own pain by numbing his arm, but he's not able to control it necessarily. And so she touches it and is affected by that power that's behind it. Um, And he, you know, he doesn't necessarily know how to control it at this point. He's still figuring out Yeah, I can't help but try and pinpoint... The meaning of it, like I'm, I'm running through yeah. like my mental rolodex of the Valar and the the Maya, like oh, you know, are any associated with ice or you know, trying to see if that means anything. But it might not mean anything. It might just be like a a, a generic expression of power. He's a powerful being. I think we can assume he's a Maya and a Starry, um, you know, one of the wizards. And this is just an, a power that they have, and we just don't shouldn't think too much about it. That's probably how we should think about it but i i can't help but wonder is it uh, a clue to his identity because they're clearly setting this up as a mystery and mm-hmm. there are clues along the way so we're being invited to every time a new breadcrumb is laid out for us you know we're being invited to follow that and try and come up with theories so but i you know nonetheless as, as much as i thought about it and and you know went back through and read tried to read stuff i couldn't place you know the ice thing with with anybody so uh but i did think that was interesting and very interesting mm-hmm. that when nori touched his arm it started to kind of grab onto her the ice started mm-hmm. going up her hand mm-hmm. and then and he was in some sort of a trance you know mm-hmm. he was not aware of her he couldn't stop what was going on even when she was being very loud and then when he is finally disturbed that you know he's it's like the moment when she found him in the first place you know this big 
burst of energy and she's thrown back. You know, she again, he, he can't control himself. So I've, all very interesting, you know, um, gives us some insight into his into his nature. I wonder if the ice has some sort of a symbolic quality. Again, I'm not sure how, how to place it, but, you know, the cold, I don't know what to make of it. Yeah, I'm still not sure. I bounce around a lot between, okay, he's got some Radagast vibes here with his yeah. like, earthy <laughs> attire and he's very brown. The whole time we see him, he's got to be Radagast. But I like the man in the moon theory. There's so many different, but I've, I've sort of stopped trying to piece it together as much and just enjoyed the ride with him because I love right. seeing this relationship unfold. Love his relationship with Gnori. He's obviously a wizard. Like that's completely obvious. But as to which one, we may just never know. Um, I did love the cultists, seeing the cultists. That is going to be... A really interesting element there with the cultists trying to track him down. Like, what do we think that is about? I did not see that coming, by the way. I did not think that the cultists were looking for the meteor man. Right, right. From the yeah, you tra- thought that, the did trailers. you think that the cultists were in Numenor? Numenorian. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely I did. I knew it could have been anywhere. I mean, just I, you can't put too much stock into the way they cut trailers together. But I did think that there was a good chance that they were Numenorian. Uh, but for no other reason than their garb seemed... Mm-hmm. Like kind of a twisted version of Numenorean garb. Yeah. You know, the the head priestess has all these um, circular items on her. That's her, right. The aesthetic the, is similar. Yeah. They're like the guild crests that, you know, mm-hmm. Farazon has these guild crests all across his torso and hers are kind of similar or or theirs are kind of similar. I think the yeah. gender is kind of unspecified at this point. Um, and uh, so I thought, all right, there's some sort of corrupted Numenoreans or uh, at least place in Numenor somewhere, but they're not, they're, they're totally middle earth. And now I really, uh, it's, did you notice that on one of the, uh, mystics, it's kind of what people are referring to them as, um, on her, the back, like the plate that's on her back or the shield or whatever it was, there was engraved the same, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The stars in the sky. Uh, boy, this is a constellation. constellation. Good Lord. Yeah. The same constellation that meteor man, Uses the fireflies to create. Oh my gosh, no. I did yeah. not know that. Yeah. So uh, that, they certainly look nefarious, though. <laughs> they yeah, look very... everything is telling us that they're evil. Like the music. Wouldn't that be funny, the though, if they were actually of... good guys? Like Meteor Man's good and they're looking for him, so they're good. Yeah, it, this the is all just a yeah. trick, a misdirection. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oof. they gave me the chills. Absolute chills. Yeah. Oh, the other thing that gave me. I was just going to say, you know, it, 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 they're clearly looking for Meteor Man right. in particular. And right. we know that there must be some sort of prophecy or something built into the lore of Middle-earth mm-hmm. where people are looking for this starfall. Um, the Harfoots have no, I had nothing on it. You know, um, Sadak was totally befuddled. But um, who's the guy in the Southlands um, who's, who's evil and trying to... Whose sword it was that Theo oh, stole? Oh yes, I can never remember his name. I'm it's forgetting terrible. names. Waldrick. Um, Waldrick. Waldrick talked about the Starfall being a sign of Sauron's return, mm-hmm. and clearly these mystics, they recognize the Starfall as being a sign. They tracked it down. They're looking for, obviously, for Meteor Man because they have these the same con- very same constellation that Meteor Man is looking for. So, um, you know, not enough for us to unlock this mystery, but it it's pointing us in a couple directions. One theory that I like is that 
if this is indeed a blue wizard, and maybe I like it because I just want him to be a blue wizard, but if Mystery Man is a, uh, if the stranger is a blue wizard, we know there are two blue wizards. Maybe the first blue wizard already came through some other mm. means, not a starfall because or else people would know about it, but he's already there. And mm. we know that the blue wizards kind of, Tolkien suggested that they went east and they kind of created these cults. So maybe he created <gasps> this other cult. And, and these are the followers of Blue Wizard number one. So they're who looking, are looking for, out number for two. Blue Wizard number two. Yeah. I would buy this because I can't think of any other reason. I really can't. I mean, but this show has surprised us in many ways. Yeah. But I like that theory. Yeah. And it um, could just be something that is totally out of left field, you know, s- s- some connection to Sauron. I don't I don't think that the stranger is Sauron, but No, I don't. Clearly they're pointing us to that to some degree, right? I mean, um linking the Starfall to Sauron's return as Waldrick does very expressly, these evil mystics looking for who are like on the hunt for the stranger. I mean, that points us towards well, the stranger is indeed Sauron returned, but I I I just think that's all misdirection, you know, it's all part oh, of the yeah. mystery box. Absolutely. Like before I would buy that, I would buy Halbrand as Sauron. I don't think that's the case, but. Which is a theory that is, uh, you know what? I thought that was absurd. I mean, if you've listened to me. Less and less absurd. Less and less absurd. Things continue to line up. I still think it doesn't quite fit. There no, are, no, no. You know, yeah. just again, I just keep wondering, like, why is Halbrand in the middle of the freaking ocean? You know, why would Sauron be in the middle of the ocean? It makes no sense. But, um, you know, one thing that would fit if, if he is Sauron. So there is a line in um, some of the texts that talks about the moment when the Valar defeat Morgoth and they summon Sauron and give him an opportunity to be pardoned, potentially, they say. But you have to come back to Valinor. You have to, um, you know, basically bow before the Valar's authority, say you're sorry, and maybe they'll pardon you, maybe not. Maybe you'll be punished. no. And he says, and he slinks away. You know, mm-hmm. and then and then the Valar just like forget about him. Yanway, the herald of Manway, is like, eh, I think I've got I left the kettle on. I've got to get back to Valinor, and they just forget about I, that. Always bothered me from the text. Yeah, and they could just forget about Sauron, but they don't force him to come back, even though he is literally Morgoth's right hand and should be punished. Maybe not as bad as Morgoth, but you know, judgment should be made. Um, he should be forced to be subject to to judgment, but they let him go, and he slinks away. And anyway, in that like paragraph, there's a suggestion that maybe his contrition initially was genuine. You know, he came before the Valar and he said, I'm sorry, please pardon me. And Yanway was like, well, I don't have the authority to do that because we're on the same level. You have to come back to Valinor. And he's like, oh, I don't want to go all the way back to daddy, you know, daddy Manway and, and say I'm sorry. And so then, then he goes back. So there's a moment where he is potentially contrite and genuinely sorry or genuinely afraid at least. There's a potential here that if Halbrand is Sauron, what they're doing is they're taking that moment, which is kind of indeterminate in time, like exactly how long that would that would take. And they're saying Sauron is trying to turn over a new leaf. He's trying to find a new life. Morgoth Searching was defeated. For peace, quote unquote. For, exactly. Halbrand said that he says, you have no idea how what long I've, I've been done. searching. Yeah. Well, he says two things. He says, you have no idea what I've done. If to you survive. Knew, you, to survive. If you knew, you would cast me out. Everyone here would cast me out, all right? Certainly, if he was Sauron, Galadriel would cast him out. Everyone cast him out. And he also said in an earlier episode, you have no idea how long I have been searching for peace. Well, if Sauron has indeed, after Morgoth's fall, for the past several hundred years, been trying to find a new way, trying to you know, put aside his dark side and find, uh, find a, the path of peace, 
you know, that people would are going to be so pissed if he's Sauron, though, because they I would be know. doing I, something I, that, like, arguably Tolkien was very against, which is way? like humanizing the villains like that, or not humanizing the villain. Um, he didn't necessarily. He focused a lot on the the characters that were like the heroes, their complexity and their struggles. Yeah. But like Sauron and Melkor, yeah. he they were corrupted. They were evil, and like they have a backstory, but it wasn't that complex, right? It's, it was like it's tough. Yeah, it's tough it's a because tough one. you know Tolkien on the one hand says, and they mention this like in the first minute of the show that nothing is evil in the beginning, that even Melkor was not evil in the beginning. Right. You know, and that Melkor at one time was good. And they open the show with that line. So you have to know that that Mm -hmm. is massively important for setting the stage for this series. I buy the Halbrand theory at this point. I think people it's are going to be pissed, but I do it's buy possible. it. Yeah. You know, you know, Gandalf said that even Sauron was not evil in the beginning. So this concept is embedded deeply in the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion. But to your point, the narrative function of Sauron and of Melkor is to be the evil enemy. There's no right. opportunity for redemption for those no, no, particular no, no. characters. For those, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, it yeah. would, I think, bother a lot of people. Even though, I, as I mentioned, I think there is an excuse. There is a justification. There's this moment in his history after Morgoth's downfall when Sauron potentially, genuinely wants maybe... to turn over a new leaf. Right. Right. And so maybe he's in that little that little window and they're playing with that. And that's, I think, entirely... Uh, um, an artistically justified approach, even if I wouldn't, I don't think I would like that. I think that's being a little too cute. Um, it's not my preferred approach to adapting that the Sauron story, but if that's a choice that they could make, and I'm kind of like approaching this with an open mind or mm-hmm. trying to, that there's this whole gamut of uh, justifiable choices um, you right. know, re- where reasonable minds can differ and I'm going to try and not get too mad about it but yeah I've never liked I've never loved the <laughs> Halbrand theory and I, you're right I think it would bother a lot of people but not a lot of regular fans I bet regular fans wouldn't care sure. they'd be like know? wow what a twist yeah 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 what a twist and it wouldn't offend them this notion that someone that he's right under her nose be... too Galadriel's been hunting him for centuries yeah. and he's right there and she doesn't that's know it the, that's the twist right I mean that yeah that would work for a lot of people I get it yeah. It's yeah, and maybe I, maybe it will grow on me. Like over time, maybe it will grow on me. So, um, but now you know, I'm still hoping that Sauron is out there, and we just haven't met him yet. Um, just because. Also, I'm hoping that as well. There's this there's this aspect of the show that is starting to get talked about a little bit more, and it's making me think about it a little more that the it, it's a term called the you know the mystery box mm-hmm. um, approach to television where. There's a mystery that has to be solved, and it's fun because as you're watching the show, you're exchanging theories. We've done this on every single episode. Who's the stranger? Mm-hmm. Who's Sauron going to be? You know, is it is it Halbrand? There's a is lot of mysteries Adar? in the show, yeah. and that's fun. But guess what happens when the mystery has been solved? It that all that fun is taken out of the show on rewatch, so you can't rewatch it and experience it in the same way because the whole mystery box has been solved. So you're no longer able to enjoy the mystery because there's no mystery anymore. So now you know, half of the appeal of the show, of the plot, of everything they've been doing has has gone away. Hmm. Um, but maybe not half. I think it's, you know, maybe a third of the show is about the mystery box. I don't know. But I think that's really an interesting point. And it's not something that Tolkien does in his writings at all. No. You know, there's no mist. Like the, the payoff in reading The Lord of the Rings is not 
that a oh, mystery man. has been solved. You're going to force me to go down a rabbit hole, and I don't want to because I want to get to the episode, but I feel <laughs> forced, so I'm going to do it. This is the problem with, that I have with Galadriel is that I want to like her and root for her and watch her because I love to watch her, not because I'm like, what's this gal going to do? Like, she's not uh-huh. enjoyable to watch, and there's many reasons for that, but like... Uh, yeah, that's sort of the problem I have with Galadriel is that care for care like take Jon Snow for example, love watching yeah. that guy, and he's always been like a he good, is very handsome. Well, that, but he's also like pure <laughs> of heart and good throughout, and we root for him. He has all these good traits and qualities. Um, yeah, and with Galadriel, like the part of the reason I'm enjoying watching her is because I'm like, what. You know, where is her plot line going to go? When that is uh-huh. gone, I do wonder how enjoyable it will be at all for me to watch this, you know, rewatch. Again, the rewatchability of the show, like it does come into question. Like once you know where her arc ends, will you be able to stomach? Yes, her behavior. Scene? Yeah, right, right. Because she, she is an incredible, she's like probably the most flawed character in the show, wouldn't you say? I mean, other than yeah. the, the, the firmly evil characters. Um, or even like Waldrick or something, but like of our protagonists, yeah, she's, she's extremely flawed. frustrating. <laughs> and I'm yeah. I'm down for flawed characters, you know. I, yeah, I'm down that's for Galadriel very being modern, flawed. I but I well, I, and I she was written as flawed by mm-hmm. Tolkien. I mean, yeah, you know, that's true. In terms of, uh, I think her, her particular flaws and, can be a little bit modern, but I yeah, I don't even know. It's like more than modern. It's she is so single-minded that she is unable to see basically anything that's around her like i mean she is supposed to be one of the most wise elves Mm -hmm. even before the third age maybe she's less serene maybe she is more i can buy like more impatient um uh more prideful more bullish i can buy all that but like she seems totally unable to understand the political dynamics of every conversation she has you know Mm -hmm. um like with with Muriel, she just insults her at every turn. Like mm-hmm. you know, that's not going to work, right? It's 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 so obvious that it's not going to work. Uh, you know, but she just tries to charge right through every situation and demand that people do what she wants. And um, there's no nuance or understanding of of the the people she's interacting with. Um, is, but yeah. it gives us a long way to go. Also for her, gives arc, us a long so. way to go. There was a moment in this scene within this episode with Halbrand where she's trying to appeal to him, you know, appeal to him going back to Middle-earth, like, go back, take charge, become, you know, the leader of your people. Yeah. I think that conversation was um, showed a side of her that I liked to see. Yeah. And I think we saw a glimpse of that when she was speaking with Muriel, too, privately, trying to empathize with her, you know? Yeah. There's definitely, a, like, a, a bit of a kinship between Muriel and Galadriel. Like, they're both... Mm-hmm. women who know the future mm-hmm. essentially they can see what's coming and they're the only ones who can see what's coming and everyone around them refuses to see it mm-hmm. um, you know in the case of Galadriel she still continues shouting from the rooftops and people ignore her Muriel knows that she can't continue shouting from the rooftops, so she's kind of been hiding it a little bit you know trying to take a because Tar Palantir her father got kicked to the curb and so she knows if I keep you know, going down this road, it's going to be bad for me. And she, and she believes bad for Numenor. So 
they're both very, very similar in that respect, although they have slightly different ways of dealing with it. Um, and they seem to bond over that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want to say, I, I've been saying like that Galadriel is frustrating, but I, I want to make a distinction here. She's not, I'm not sure that I hate it. <laughs> you know, sometimes characters are designed to frustrate you. Mm-hmm. You know, they're written to frustrate you, to be frustrating, to have those flaws and for those flaws to like, to, to bother you. Cause as a viewer, we know what the right thing to do is in a scene and, and the character doesn't like, Sometimes that's intentional. It's not bad writing. It's deliberate writing. And they're trying to make us feel a thing. Like they're trying to make us feel the frustration about like Galadriel, if you only did this, you know, if you only went, if you only zigged instead of zagged, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that I am mad about it uh, or that I dislike the writing of the character yet. You know, we'll see how the, the whole arc unfolds. I think sometimes it can be a little like too much. It's like one dimensional, one, one color, uh, one tone. Um but that's starting, as you mentioned, we're, that's starting to soften a little bit. We're seeing a little bit more of, uh, you know, the Galadriel that we saw with Elrond. You know, that was her friend. And there was, they were actually having a conversation instead of her just, like, looking past the person she's talking to towards her goal. You know what I mean? Right. So I hope we get a little bit more of that. Yeah, I but, think we will. I think we will see the arc. But it's been a little bit, ah. She's still, yeah. she's very, there's a lot of elvish manipulation in this episode, mm-hmm. by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Galadriel, like, you know, she knows how Bran doesn't want to go back. Um, and he has said that from the beginning, clearly he is experiencing trauma. Like, there's a trauma that he is fleeing. He does not want to go back. And she just does not care. No. She, you know, because she has her mission and she sees him as a, a, a tool. She's using him like a tool like an object that she can use yeah. to achieve her goal and she does not care one iota about the trauma he's, he's experienced the things she doesn't even ask she doesn't even ask no and you know maybe this is like all right uh she knows it would actually be good she's an extra wise elf so she knows it would be good for him to go back so she's doing what's really good for him but it, it doesn't really feel that way it just feels like she's ignoring his pleas he's a means to an end he's a means to an end it's very manipulative, you know, and even when he's it's the three of them and and he indicates that he doesn't really want to go back and Miro kind of catches on to that. And Halbrand starts to say, like, well, actually, Galadriel cuts him off and says, uh, when the time comes, I'm sure he'll do his part. And I was like, you're not even going to let him speak. You know, it's uh, it's, it's really interesting. I actually there, there was a believability issue for me in that scene. Like, Muriel, as a ruler, is about to make one of the most important decisions of her political career um, and, just like, moral career as a leader, taking Numenor to follow an elf to save the, the men in Middle-earth, um, which half of Numenor doesn't want. And as she says, I'm staking my name on it. And Halbrand indicates, like, it's obvious that he's trying, he wants to tell her he doesn't want to go. And she doesn't try and probe that further. She just accepts Galadriel and, in, you know, interjecting and like clearly, <laughs> clearly Galadriel's not speaking accurately for Halbrand. So wouldn't Muriel want to know if the whole plan hinges on Halbrand willingly going and assisting Well, she does raise that. King? I mean, Muriel says like, is he going to come? I've staked my name on this. She says that expressly. Yeah, but, but then you know. she accepts Galadriel's explanation like immediately, you know, and doesn't question it when Halbrand is right there and trying to tell her the opposite, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I don't know. I, I thought that like a real ruler would ask for Halbrand to speak up and ask what Halbrand wanted to, to know. And they could have written differently. she just doesn't want to know the truth. 
Um, they could have written it differently so that Halbrand like didn't say what he really felt because of X, Y, and Z, because of Galadriel's influence, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They could have done that a little differently. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it did seem... It did seem like she would want to hash out details, and I think that's what they were trying to achieve with that scene. Like, okay, here's Muriel, yeah. you know, planning, plotting for when they get to Middle-earth, trying to make a, you know, battle plan. But, right. yeah, it was just... Yeah, I, I, that scene didn't bother me as much as some others in this episode, but... uh. <laughs> well, let's let's get to the other. Or do you want to stick with Numenor? We can talk about Elendil um, and Let's talk uh, about Isildur. Numenor. I was surprised by a lot of things. Or Ferrazon, yeah. In Go Numenor. Ahead. I was very surprised by Ferrazon in this episode. Yeah. That I was surprised that Kemen was the one winding Ferrazon up. And Ferrazon wants them to go to Middle-earth to yeah. conquer and to get and to make Numenor great again and, you know, get resources and et cetera. Yeah. But I was surprised that that was his motive and his, we have thought that we have suspected that all along he's been plotting to take Muriel's throne and putting the pieces yep. in order to do that. And it seems like Kemen was pushing him to do that, but actually his motives are, glory for for Numenor more so than taking the throne for himself so that was surprising and I like it because I like it it's slower you know it it shows his descent uh, and and takes that descent over a longer timeline and I appreciate that because if this had happened in you know episode you know seven or at the end of this season basically where they leave in episode six and um and Pharaoh's immediately seizes power that's just kind of rapid um, it, it wouldn't feel earned, like the significance of that event wouldn't have uh, been sufficiently dramatic. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that they defied my expectations in that regard. And um, and it makes Farazon a more cunning mm-hmm. individual as well. Yeah. Um, another that's thing that's right. interesting is uh, th- we're really seeing the time compression come into play. I I did not realize that they had never been to Middle Earth. Like I think this is the first real confirmation of that. Um, yeah. So we're going to get to see, we're truly going to get to see the downfall from the beginning, yes. which was that they start to conquer other lands. And that's the beginning of the end. That's yeah. a turning really point it's even, for them. It's, it's even uh, taking it farther back than that because, you know, in the several thousand year history of Numenor, they initially start going to Middle Earth as as peaceful helpers, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. completely peaceful um, for a long time. They, they teach the middlemen things. They help show them how to build and, and the middlemen revere them as, you know, sort of benevolent gods. Almost. They, they revere them in, in that respect. Yeah. And Numenor, you know, takes nothing, wants nothing. They genuinely come to help for years. And, and years we're going to see and this then, fast tracked. I think. Yeah. All of this. I, I think it starts out, <clears throat> you know, yeah, it, it's, it's, not going to have the same effect exactly, but they're cl- clearly coming now to help, right? Muriel is coming to save the, the Southlanders from Adar and the orcs. So in that sense, okay, that we're seeing that's the show's version of, you know, a thousand years of Numenorians coming to Middle-earth as benevolent, you know, uh, god helpers. Um, and very quickly that's going to clearly turn. Like, they'll probably do a time jump in the in the second season, so they'll, like, have been going back and forth in Middle Earth for a long time, but the seeds of the corruption and the the despotic um, oppression are going to be planted 
right from the beginning because Farazon already yeah. views Middle Earth as uh, he doesn't say it as much, but he's like, we're gonna put, we're gonna install their king, and you know, you could think like, oh, it'll be a great ally, but I think Farazon thinks like we can control this king and. Like you said, resources. Resources are abundant, and mm-hmm. we're going to basically spread the tentacles of our kingdom. That's his approach. And so um, very rapidly, we're going to see this helpful Numenor turn into an oppressive Numenor. And uh, I'm glad that we are getting that. Like mm-hmm. This is clearly an adapted version. It's not exactly the same, but they're not skipping those steps. They're, it's a different form, but I like that we're getting it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. The Numenorian plot line is obviously... I think it's my favorite at this point, and so I'm glad oh. that Numenor is not going to sink, you know, beneath the waves before I'm ready for that. <laughs> That's so interesting. So I think, you know, as long as we're talking about favorite plot lines, I think Numenor is probably among my least favorite, to really? be honest. Yeah. I'd say um, Harfoot's Numenor, Adar, the darker plot lines, definitely into those. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like, you know... I like all the plot lines quite a bit, so it's not like I dislike the numerous plot lines. I think I just like it probably the least. The sets are the best, obviously. Yeah, the sets um, are the best. I For me, it's sets, characters, love Isildur. You know, the stuff between Isildur and um, and his father, I thought, you know, I, I thought those were good scenes. The acting was great. Um, Isildur is a full-on was, brat. He's a brat. Things. It was a little much to have, like, well... Learn your place, son, over and over, sort of. But I liked, I liked, but it. I, I liked it. The acting's really great, and the the, yeah. the the script, the dialogue was very good. In and all, it felt of those very scenes. believable. Isildur very believable, is, yeah. You know, Elendil said, like, what? You know, I have uh, one son who runs blind, and or mm-hmm. one who runs fast, and one who runs blind. I forget which is which, but um, you see that with Isildur, he is yeah. he's got a good heart, clearly, but yeah, he's making you know kind of dumb choices, yeah, you know. And Instead he hasn't of quitting the sea his... guard, he's getting himself thrown off in a dumb right. way, which ends up hurting his friends. He's being very selfish in that regard. And then he decides, oh, I want to go to to Middle Earth. And, hey, Dad, can you get me to the front of the line? You know, it's so entitled. And uh, he's not yeah. earning his place. And Elendil totally calls him out on that, as a very yeah. good dad should. You yeah. know, look at all these other people out there. They are earning their place. Right. You, know, you are you are feigning uh, obeisance to the feigning fidelity to the the principles of Numenor, but these people are living them out and they are working and they are serving. And that's right. what I want to see from you. Yeah. I I love the scenes between those two. I think they have a really re- believable bond between them mm-hmm. relationally. Um and so all of those are are really great. Totally work for me. Um yeah, I mean every character in Numenor I find really really interesting and I want to see more of. Farazon, I really like the actor who's playing Farazon. Oh, he's great. First off. So Acting good. is great. It's it's really interesting. Um, so with Numenor not having ever been to Middle Earth before, we're still in this place where Numenor doesn't have an active military, and so Farazon in our in our episode talking about his backstory, you know, he was a well regarded warrior and leader who would sail to Middle Earth and he would you know attack the middlemen essentially. He was kind of part of that oppressive regime, or at least we can kind of infer that. And uh, but he has no military history. Now we know that because they'd never been to Middle Earth, clearly he had never been, you know, doing, he was not a well-regarded military ship captain. That's just not part of his backstory. So that's kind of interesting. That changes him a little bit as a character. I also see, think that he is being portrayed as far more of a sort of a Littlefinger-esque type of character. Mm, Very clever. mm -hmm. He's, 
He's way he's a spy. Oh wait, no, not the spider. That's a different character. But he's um yeah, creating a web of yeah chess yeah. chess pieces. Sorry, I just can't pick an analogy here. And he's amb- <laughs> he's ambitious. You know, he's yeah. he has ambitions, and he's working within the system. Um, you know, I think I'm not sure whether or not he genuinely is in some respects loyal to Tarmiriel or whether he's being a t- uh, 100% opportunist. I'm not sure where his heart is. That's kind of interesting and fun to watch mm-hmm. um, because I'm not exactly sure. But um, it's a little different from how I conceived Farazon in the books. different. Mm-hmm. You know, Farazon is, he seizes power. You know, he seized power and he is, uh, and not necessarily because he wanted power or because he was ambitious, but because he thought he was the best. <laughs> and because he wanted to seize immortality you know he and this he, he, may he still come to pass but yeah slowly i'm just not seeing the roots of it you know i'm not seeing the the kernels of those um character traits yet it just seems like he is um trying to work the political system game the system in order to acquire power which seems kind of like a small makes him seem a little bit smaller to me than than the fair on the books um I'm not saying I. I mean, like I said, yeah. I really like it. I like what more I'm shall be revealed because it could be that he's not being totally upfront with his son either. Like we yeah. will see. Yeah, and yeah, and he'll get there, and we'll we'll see. That is a character in a plotline I'm really interested to watch, and I'm enjoying watching quite a bit. Yeah. Um, Kemen, Kemen. what a dummy! Like, what was his plan? <laughs> by the way. Oh yeah, burning the ships down. So stupid. Yeah. Yeah, that was silliness. I mean, I guess that would stop those ships from going, but they have other ships, don't they? You know, it's oh not yeah. Gonna, I mean, this is a seafaring island. Like, yeah. they, that's what they do, man. And his dad let him in on the plan, and and he's not in, not convinced. I guess, you know, I think he's just doing this for Iarian, right? He's trying to stop the expedition from going because he is totally twitterpated with Iarian. Apparently, yeah. I feel like his motivations were a little bit confusing, like. Why does he feel this strongly? Right. I thought it, it was be. kind of funny. You know, so his plan is I'm going to burn these ships down. Isildur is there because he's stowing away. Mm-hmm. So that's a, I guess that, that is a believable sort of meet cute between those two who are now going to be kind of, I don't know if they're going to be friends or frenemies. I'm they're interested connected, to see where that relationship but, goes, but yeah. now they are connected. They don't like each other. That's for sure. It didn't seem like, although I'm not sure why exactly. You would think that. Kemen, if he knew who Isildur was, if he knew that Isildur was Yarian's sister, yeah, that he would want to like be friends with him, right? Because that would bring him closer to Yarian. I don't know. But I'm surprised that, that they got off so easy. Right? They're they're discovered, like yeah. swimming away they're from like, the ship well, exploding. Boys will be boys. Welcome well, yeah, You know, there I think what what was Kemen's explanation? Like, oh, there was a you know, bandits no, or something. Isildur, yeah. Yeah, Isildur rescued me. There were, yeah, he be- he bonked his head, and they pulled him out, and yeah, like there's no further questioning about yeah, exactly like, what happened. Wow, that's yeah, so heroic. Like, right, right. Oh, okay. Glad you're okay. Now let's go figure out this mystery of what happened, and we won't question the two eyewitnesses any further. You know, it's, I, I thought that was a little funny. Yeah, that was definitely funny. That was a weird scene. I don't know. It, again, like that's a throwaway scene to me. Did it further the bit. plot? I don't feel like it did. I feel like that was such wasted time. Maybe more, you know, maybe there's something I don't know. Yeah, may- and maybe there will be, they will pick that up in the next episode. And there will be like, Elendil will question Isildur further or Farazan will question Kemen further. I, I w- would not be surprised if there are those scenes that build upon the curiosity of 
them swimming away from the boat. So, you know, I think I'm expressing dissatisfaction at the notion that that wouldn't be probed into further and that everyone would just accept their story at face value, which it seems implausible. But I think it's probably pretty likely that we will get a scene of either Elendil or Farazon asking questions and, and not and being a little more circumspect. So uh, but we'll see in the, in the yeah, next episode. We'll see. Um, shall we move to your faves? Who's that? Who are my faves? <laughs> Don't play cute with me. Well, that, all right. All right. You got me. Waldrick, that saucy boy, my favorite character. <laughs> no. I mean, no. back in his day. Could have uh, been a look yeah. at who knows. Um, <laughs> back when Sauron, he was riding high with Sauron, you know, those were the glory days. I mean, Waldrick if you was... want to talk that, uh, I have a lot to say about the Adar, Orcs, Bronwyn. Okay. Arondir. I was joking, but yeah, let's let's talk a little bit. Go ahead. Go ahead. Talk about that. Where do you want okay. to start with Bronwyn? And <clears throat> let's start with Bronwyn. Stirring speech. Okay. I loved Bronwyn's speech, first of all. I think she's a great actor. I loved her speech, her rallying cry. What I had a very serious problem with was that not a long time later, not much time goes by, and she totally flips and Uh. wants to go to Adar and surrender after this rallying cry. And yes, granted, like half the people left after it, but just how... It it made no sense to me that all of a sudden, like, a switch flip would flip and she'd be like, well, guess that's all I got. One rousing speech was all I had in me. It didn't work. So, like, here I go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kneel before Adar and pledge allegiance. That was so silly to me. It did not work at all. It was so silly. Like, here she is being courageous. She's stout of heart. And, like, the, the last thing you want to see is someone like that, you know, this character then saying, well, I give up. Like, let's go bend the knee. That that did not work at all. Um, you know what? I'm going to disagree with you on this one. Um, I felt I did feel what you feel. I, I, I get that. It felt a little abrupt, like a bit of an abrupt turn. But I don't really hate it. And the more I think about it, I kind of like it. Um, because her speech, her impassioned speech to, to everyone, which I thought was only okay i thought it was like a little i th- I think that could have done with a little bit more of a poetic zhuzh you know it was basically like who will f-, like she went right to the, the the who will fight with me i don't know anyway let's get past the speech it felt a little bit like um it was heroic but also desperate it was a desperate plea it was desperate people. though like it was a desperate and, situation and and she sees them you know for a second they're they're behind her or it feels that way then it takes one guy, Waldrick, who comes in and, it, and says, you know what? This so-called enemy, let's, you know, let's live. We'll say one thing for our enemies. They lived. They survived. Let's go survive. And half the people are like, yeah, you know what? And half the people leave. And yeah. so Bronwyn, who is desperate, is immediately seeing her plan fail. And now she's looking at a depleted force. And if it was desperate before... It is doubly desperate now. Just like being a realist. Yeah, but what's like the likelihood go they're gonna flee survive? in the night then and sneak away. You don't go surrender to the enemy. She was staunchly against this just hours before. You know, the only other, yeah, I just didn't buy it at all. But, you know, she was staunchly against it because there was a possibility they could survive, a possibility they could win. Like I'm not seeing the type of um, like um, Rohiric which is like a reflection of the this Germanic notion of like fatalism, where it's like we will fight, Ride out and if we die, me. we die. Ride out with me, like yeah, w- like Theoden 
accepting kind of his death, his doom. And, and I will die as one of them. Now I'm just yeah. Cool. It's like you know <laughs> we'll die in battle and we'll go to Valhalla. You know, um, she doesn't have that attitude. She desperately wants to fight and to survive. She wants to defeat the evil because that's what she. That's, that's what the I'm good saying. Thing to do. That's okay. You're underscoring my point, which is that she knows it's evil. She would never surrender to that evil. She doesn't want to be evil. She wants to do the right thing, but she also wants to live. And she's not willing to just, like, fight uh, a battle she knows she will lose. She's not willing to see her son die in a battle she knows he will lose, right? She's not going to, like, sentence herself and her son and all the people to death. She's not willing to do that. That You know, maybe there's some honor in that, and that's a quality, like, that's sort of a Rohiric Germanic quality that's reflected in the Rohirrim in the Lord of the Rings. But I, I think we got to take it easy on her. If like, if there's no hope, there's no hope. She's fully despairing, and that is that is a theme that Tolkien plays with. There's you know there's no realistic hope. There's there's different versions of hope, and um, the way that characters interact with that. And I think it's important to to have a character that is a good character. Bronwyn is a good character, but who gives in and who abandons hope, and we have to see what that looks like. You know, so I that's why I kind of am like liking it. Yeah, she's doing the wrong thing. She shouldn't give in. I agree with you. But she does because that's what people do sometimes. They give up hope, you know, even when they desperately were clinging to the last strands of it, even moments before eventually those strands of hope slip out of their fingers and they give in and they want to save themselves. They want to save Theo and they do the wrong thing in pursuit of that, but they just want to save themselves. So, uh, you know, I I, I, I don't hate it. I, the more I think about it, the more I kind of feel like it, it works and it's almost an important thing for them to show. After Trisha mentioned that she's the only one who doesn't have anything over her shoulders, that's all I can think about now. When I'm watching her, I'm like, she does look chilly. It does look cold out there. I oh, wish yeah, she'd put yeah. a shawl on. <laughs> right. She has right. beautiful shoulders, but <laughs> everyone everyone else is wearing like burlap bags, basically. It's like brown and drab. And she's got this beautiful blue yeah. dress. Yeah. Strapless. No, anyway, I, yeah. Really. Other than that, I mean, I love the scenes between those two, between Arondir and Bronwyn. I love the dialogue between yeah. them. Um, man, the Adar and the the orcs marching up, and it was great. Them chanting, oof, chilling, great scene. So, what do you think of the the first scene we see with Adar, with uh, the orc has a name, but I don't remember what it is. That whole scene I thought was very very interesting. Ooh, that was a great Adar scene. Is, Adar is clearly not you know an orc, and he's not fully evil. He talks about the sun <laughs> lovingly and how he will miss the sun. He will miss the which sun. It says two things to me. One, Adar was not always evil, which I, I think we kind of already knew. Like, if he was an elf, sure. he couldn't have always been evil. Nothing like, was evil corrupted. in the beginning, once again. And But he still remembers, you know, his youth with fondness, right? That his corruption isn't so deep that he stamped all of that out of himself. It's still there, and he remembers it. And he, he's looking up at the sun and remembering those days. And, you know, he's saying to the orc even, I wish you could feel it the way that I feel it, you know? It, it's sympathy for the orcs because they can't enjoy the sun the way he always felt it. And then he says he's sad that the sun is going away. I forget the exact line. But clearly he has some plans uh, in store to, I don't think it's like to destroy the sun. I think he's going to create some clouds to block out the sun, which is exactly uh-huh. what Sauron does in the Third Age. You know, Baradur, uh, not Baradur, uh, Aradruin, Mount Doom is spewing, you know. Right dark clouds and as a result there's always the a shadow all throughout uh, Mordor so perhaps we are seeing the beginnings of that process beginnings of the creation of Mordor 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was a great scene. All of his scenes are phenomenal. Um, yeah. And the bone chilling scene where, you know, he asks um, our friend to slit the boy's throat. Ooh, oh, yeah. brutal. So yeah. glad they didn't show it. Once again, they held back. Do you think he actually so does it? Do you think, they, I think he, he does, does it? it? Okay. I think he does it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that was because it's brutal. maybe I'm just like in Game of Thrones mindset where it's like if they don't show the death, it didn't actually happen. Like, that's <laughs> always a twist they can play with. Characters come back. If you don't see the head get chopped off the body, you know, they're not dead. Uh, oh, I so think maybe, it happened, but maybe it'll play out differently. Yeah, we'll find out. Okay, here's another thing. When Waldrick approaches Adar, he thinks he's Sauron. And we don't know yet whether or not Adar is Sauron. Like, officially, the show hasn't confirmed or denied one way or the other. And so he says, you know, I, I uh, bow to you, my lord Sauron, or whatever it is. And Adar seems pissed, mm-hmm. like real pissed. Mm-hmm. You know, he picks him up and throws him on the ground. Mm-hmm. What do you think was going on there? Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's because he called him Sauron. Something obviously triggered him when he was referred to by that name. So I've always thought he's definitely in cahoots with Sauron. I think that's still the yeah. case, but I'm and not. I, that's part of my question is I don't I don't know. Does his is he uh, in allegiance with Sauron? Because it seems like it seems like he's serving his ends in a lot of ways. He's gathering yeah. orcs under a banner in Mordor. Um, I think we know that that Mount Doom is going to explode just based on trailers. Like we know that all the ash and the, the stuff that like that's in the Southlands. That's going to be Mount Doom exploding. So is Adar causing Mount Doom to explode? He's planning on Mount Doom spewing, you know, smoke and everything. So clearly he's acting towards ends that Sauron would have wanted. So it seems like he should be under his banner. Right. But where is Sauron? Like, is he, is he in this show yet? Have we seen him or is he, is he Halbrand like searching for peace? And in which case Aldron is, uh, Adar is left to his own devices and he's doing this all on his own. Yeah. It's the enduring mystery. I mean, I think he has to be working with Sauron. My theories are all wrong because I thought, most definitely, Sauron had already been around winding up Kellen Brimbor, and it doesn't seem right. like that's the case anymore. I don't know. I think that could very much still be the case. Um, and we'll get into that when we talk about the Mithril stuff. But, um, you know, one thing that came to mind is Sauron is not a name that Sauron called himself. He didn't permit people to call him Sauron, and he didn't refer to himself that way because it means the abhorred. And he didn't refer to himself as the abhorred. <laughs> that that is a name that oh, so his enemies an gave him. It's an insult, and his right, servant so. would know it's an insult as well. Or he would know it. Like again, if, if he is if Sauron, he would know. Keeping on the table, if Adar is Sauron, maybe he'd be pissed. It's like, how dare do you call me the abhorred? I will yeah. hit you. <laughs> yes. Um, so I don't know. That I thought that was interesting. But it was an interesting reaction. It was mm. Certainly. A surprisingly violent reaction to the first person who is coming and bowing to you, which is exactly what you asked them to do. You know, yeah. Waldrick's so feeling a little bit, a little bit, uh, really dumb right about now. Real dumb, real dumb. Actually, he's he's probably fine. He's like, yeah, I'll kill that kid. I don't care. Yeah, he's not a he's he doesn't strike me as a super upstanding guy person. Yeah, uh. I I you know the more that I think about, it, I don't think that kid's dead. I you know. He's Theo's friend. I think it would be too meaningless a death for this character. I think they're going to play with it. Like, I think Adar stops him in the moment. You know, like, it's a test, and then when he was about to do it, he stops him. I don't know. I think there's a chance he's still alive. Very biblical. We will see. Yeah. Um, I feel like we have to talk about the dwarves before 
too much time. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. This is let's talk. Th- this is the most important part of this. Oh, so many surprises. I mean, what? I first of all, <laughs> swearing an oath and then immediately afterwards breaking it, like immediately, he well, broke he his oath. Does not he does not break it. I mean, he kind of does. He well, <clears throat> Gilgalad asks him straight up. Yeah. And tells him to break his oath, but we don't see El- like Elrond doesn't spill the beans. No, Elrond so I think, doesn't spill the beans. According but... to the rules, Elrond has not broken the oath. It's it's kind of one of those things where you know Gilgalad already knows. But he but he talks about it all to to Kellum Brimbor. Tells Kellum Brimbor all about it. Isn't that uh, breaking the oath? Doesn't he tell Kellum Brimbor that uh, about the meeting? Well, let's see. Well, but Kellum Brimbor already knew. So yeah, I guess technically because he talked to Kellum Brimbor about it. I guess that's breaking the oath because the oath is to not breathe a word of this to anybody. But right. Celebrimbor already knew, which was the revelation in that scene, that right. Celebrimbor and Gilgalad already knew. Already knew they had Mithril. This substance, yeah, um, and that they had sent Elrond in. Basically, their purpose was to go get it. Boy, I, I talked about all the elvish deception in this episode. That is the some manipulation. One. That's some heavy manipulation. Oh you know? yeah, and and Elrond, how do you feel about like? I don't know if that's the nature of elves like that. I had a little bit of a hard time with that. I don't know. I, that am, we I am struggling. A I don't know that we it. see that very often in the books. It's just different. We we see. I mean, we see the elves make a lot of bad decisions. Bad stuff. Yeah. You know, Feanor and his sons. You know, yeah, Exhibit that's true. A. <laughs> they are terrible people. Terrible people. That's true. Fingal. But you know, Gilgalad King, uh, doing this? I don't no, know. No, well, that's the thing that a lot of people are bristling about. And, yeah. Uh, you know, Gilgalad is, Gilgalad was an elven king of him the harper sadly sings. Yeah. Like, he is a hero in the history. I don't know that I love this Gilgalad. I'm going to be truthful. I certainly don't love him as a, you know, he doesn't seem very nice. So I, I don't love him in that respect. But do I hate that they are taking him in this other direction? And I haven't made up my mind yet. Um, because Gilgalad is a hero. But what does that mean in terms of his one-on-one interactions like when you get zoom in and actually trying to tell a story um is does that mean he's like nice and uh you know warm as summer like they describe elrond's described in these very glowing terms yes. you know that he's like kind and warm yeah. and thoughtful i think he is all and of those is, things and elrond is all of those things Gilgalad, we get nothing. Yeah. Um, there's I nothing written like in him. his voice <laughs> yeah. except for the letter written to uh, Tarman Elder. That's the only thing that we get in his voice is that letter. And that doesn't tell us much about like how he behaves. So it's not like it's against the books that Gilgalad would potentially be a little bit um, – he'd keep things close to the chest, that he would maneuver people a little bit, um, that he would not always bear his full mind to everyone. Like, we know that elves, there are plenty of scenes where elves do that, where they don't divulge everything to everyone else, right? They keep their thoughts in their head. Um, you know, whether you consider that manipulative and a bad thing, that's all subject to interpretation. Um, but I think the thing is, people, because Gilgalad is a quote-unquote good character, and he is, he has to be a good character, people bring with them into the watching experience all this baggage about, what they think a good character should be. Like, what is a good person? How should a good person behave? And they are uh, projecting that onto Gilgalad and yeah. expecting him to be those things. But we don't know that he is those things. We don't know if he's warm or kind or empathetic because Tolkien doesn't tell us. And Gilgalad, what he is doing is, like, all of his maneuvering and his manipulations, whether or not you think that's good or bad, 
he is fighting evil. Everything that he's done has been geared towards fighting evil and right. protecting the elves. So in that sense, he's, it, he's he still... He thinks that it's um, in service of the greater good. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. That's a much better way of saying it. <sighs> right. And that, ah, I see that. Yeah. As I said, I'm sort of like wrestling with it. Do I like this? Right. Do I not like this? Um, I thought it was very surprising, though, that... Like the the whole plot line with Mithril was surprising. Surprising. The yes. creation of Mithril was surprising. Yes. The origin there it story. Is. Yeah. Very. The song surprising. of Hithiglir. Yeah. So I I didn't have an issue with it. I was just like, oh, okay, interesting. This is not from the books. Right. Um. I think it, it is a, an interesting origin story. It worked for me. Like it sounded believable. Um, right. And we've certainly seen there are there's an example of elves fighting a Balrog. Uh, uh-huh. So it is within the realm of believability for me. So funny because we're yeah. talking about a Balrog, a made up <laughs> creature being believable. <laughs> yeah, I, be- I believe but, a Balrog. Yeah, oh, I buy it. <laughs> no, I liked it. I liked that they went to sort of this. Uh, I like the flashback or the um, portrayal of this. I like the. Yeah. The graphics were really beautiful. Um, but Durin's reaction to all of this was also very surprising. Um, I don't know how you felt about that. Durin learning of um, all of this. You mean the moment when Elrond yes. divulges the, the, confesses. the elves' um, you know, conspiracy, basically? Yeah, yes. when he confesses. And yeah, he I'm surprised that, that Durin upset. wasn't. He doesn't seem that <laughs> upset. I thought he would be pissed. A, because yeah, pissed. he should assume that. Like, Elrond's not. Cl- El- Elrond is kind of clear that he was used. Right. Um, I, I, if I remember right, like this is a hot take, so I haven't come back and watched it a million times. I, I, but I think it's right that Elrond does make clear that he didn't know. Yeah, so that probably helps. Yeah, but nonetheless, Elrond must have found out by having a conversation with Gilgalad or Celebrimbor about the Mithril. So in that sense, he probably broke the oath. So you think Durin would pause about that? Yeah. Um, he does not. And at the minimum, he would be super pissed at Gilgalad and Celebrimbor, even if he's not mad at his friend. He should be mad at the elves in general, and he's not really, which is interesting. Um, but I like, I like this. I love the Durin character, and I love their dynamic. It's so charming. Like every moment they're together on screen is just so good. And I, I do, I, I laughed out loud. Like that was a moment in the show when I laughed out loud when Durin is like, uh, like who holds the like the lives of the elves in his hands? Who? He's basically like telling Elrond, like, say my name, say my name. I oh, yeah, really so funny. funny. There were some funny It's very modern. Like, it's modern it was, humor. It's it, an it anachronism. I don't care. It was funny. And then, like, he he stares at Elrond with this, like, very humorous glance and just kind of goes, hmm. you know, makes this little sound. Uh, I just thought it was really, really funny. And that's, I'm sure that was an acting choice by Owen Arthur. And kudos for that. I thought it was really just perfect. That was good. Um, I didn't love the, like, I'm about to say the S word. I'm about to say shit, and then we're going to bleep it out. Like, it was kind of funny, but it was, uh, yeah, super, super oh, yeah. modern. I wasn't totally thrilled with it, but. Uh, yeah, the, the dinner scene. The dinner I thought scene. the whole business with the table was, like, pretty funny. I enjoyed it. Um, I, I think some people, I've seen some people react negatively because they feel like Gil-Galad wouldn't be duped. Like, Gil-Galad would know that this was kind of a trick by Durin. First of all, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I do not think that all elves, I don't think they hold dwarves in high enough regard to know much about their customs and culture. So I absolutely think an elf could be duped by a, a dwarf explaining what their own culture is. Um, but also, I think, watching that scene, that 
I think there's a chance that he did know and nonetheless allowed Durin to have his joke. I think that might have been what's going on there because just just the look on his face, I think he kind of knew what was happening and just, I'm not going to press this issue because we need Durin. We find this out later in a later scene. We need Durin. We need that Mythril. So I'm not going to uh, get into it with him right now. And I'm going to give him this table. So I kind of think that's what was Right. We need Mithril to survive, which was interesting. The corruption. How did you feel about that? Okay. So this is really... This is really the most important, interesting thing about this episode. So t- to be clear about it, the, sign- the Song of Hithyglir, and Hithyglir means Misty Mountains. It's referring to that mountain range, which is Casa Doom is in the Misty Mountains. The Song of Hithyglir is made up for the show, 100% made up. I'm 99.9% sure that there is no reference to anything related to that uh, anywhere in the legendary. So it is a completely fabricated origin story for Mithril. And it is, I'm pretty sure, com- you know, inconsistent with what we know about Mithril, which is that it was around um, early in the first age, you know. So the Song of Hithyglir, their story was that a Silmaril got, like, bound up in a tree and that the dwarf was pouring all of his good into protecting the tree and the borrower was pouring all of his evil into destroying the tree and the power of their battle, you know, basically destroyed the Silmaril in the tree and it kind of seeped into the rocks. That's the myth. Um so clearly it's, you know, talking about the destruction of a Silmaril, which the elves would know is at the end of the, the first age. Um, I have issues with that, too, just because of what we know about how the elves, how the Silmarils actually were destroyed. You know, why would this myth persist? But um, so and, and the, according to this story, Mithril would have been created near the end of the first age. There are examples of Mithril existing before that. In the Legendarium, um, it's supposed to exist in Casa Doom before the end of the First Age. It's it's also, it appears in other places. I think it appears in Valinor. I think that Fingalot, uh, Arendil's ship, had Mithril on it. So, um, you know, it's it's a bit of a change. Now, is it an important change, like the exact when and where of when Mithril is created? I don't think it's really important. That's not the part that I'm really worried about. Um, I, I will say that just from a high level, I do like the story. If the story felt Tolkienian to me, the visuals were beautiful. Like the yeah, the yeah. symbolism of like you know the, the idea of a Silmaril getting bound up in a tree, which trees are very you know Tolkienian. And then in the course of the battle, it kind of like being just destroyed. I don't think a Silmaril could really be destroyed. That's a bit lore breaking, but still like then it seeps into the rocks and that became like that's just like a beautiful story, and I enjoyed it. And it did feel like something Tolkien could have written. Um, even though it's not consistent with what he did write, it feels like something he could have. And so in that sense, I just really enjoyed it. And the visuals were wonderful. I, I enjoyed all that. Um, where it gets a little bit dicey is the idea that they're kind of turning Mithril into more than just a beautiful substance. It is imbued with uh, sort of an angelic quality because the Silmarils contain the light of the two trees. The idea is it's the light of the two trees. The light of Valinor has now seeped into the rocks, and that's what Mithril is. So Mithril contains the light of Valinor. Wow, that's really interesting. And it may, turns Mithril into sort of a magical artifact. And I don't think Tolkien did that very much, with very rare exceptions. Obviously, the Silmarils are like magical artifacts. The One Ring and the Rings of Power are magical artifacts. But using a magical artifact in this way, where like it, where 
the elves need to acquire Mithril to save themselves from fading. Like they need to acquire something that has the light of the two trees imbued in it in order to protect themselves from fading. It's like kind of connecting them to Valinor. I think that oversimplifies the fading of the elves. Like it's it, so uh, literal. It's so literal. It's kind of I reductive. Didn't, I it's, it's, didn't love it. Yeah. I think there were other ways that they could have portrayed like why the elves need to leave and why they are torn about that, why they might need to stay and defend Middle-earth at the same time. It, it, yeah, it just felt like a, a reach, a little bit of a reach. Yeah. So one theory that I kind of like is we've already talked about how some people believe that perhaps Sauron as Anatar is already in Eregion and he's already corrupting Celebrimbor and then that's why Celebrimbor believes he needs to do this by spring and because Sauron has put something in his head. So we already had that theory. Now let's layer onto it. Well, now Celebrimbor believes that the elves are going to fade away into nothing and that if they don't remedy that problem by spring, then they're all doomed. Um, the theory goes that it is Sauron who is conveying that notion to Celebrimbor. That he is sort of... That's why that they need There is a truth oh, to it. if you can acquire the Mithril, yeah. then you will be... Okay, that makes more sense. And remember what sense. Halbrand said. Remember what Halbrand said. Um, you know, the way to master someone is to identify what they fear and give them the, re- the means to master it so that you can master them. That's very consistent with what Sauron did with the One Ring. Right. And but Sauron exactly cannot be both Halbrand and no, like no, working in Regeon, right? They're that's mutually true. exclusive. I don't think so. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think that's possible. Unless they have something where he's like, I don't know, teleporting back and forth, which would just blow my mind. No, no. no. Um, All but, right. So yeah, more. I mean, more shall be revealed had, on that one. Yeah. So the idea is that like Mithril, it's that the Song of Hithaglir is not true, and that Mithril does not have the light of the two trees, and it doesn't have this magical quality, and it won't save you. But um, they're buying Sauron what Sauron is them. selling. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And see, I kind of do like that. Right. I yeah. don't like it at face value, but if it's Sauron making trouble and planting lies in their head, that totally tracks. Yeah. I just don't, you know, I don't love the idea that the the plight of the elves and their plot motivation is going to be reduced to them. Well, we need to get this item. We need to mine for Mithril. It's kind of like uh, an avatar how they all need unobtainium, which is like the name is ridiculous. It's just like this magical thing, and it's it just drives everything. The, the, the magical material being the driver of the narrative plot, I'm not a fan of that. Um, I don't think I'm a fan of that. Maybe, you know, maybe it'll be fine, but that's my initial reaction. But there are ways for it to be really, really useful. One, so one interesting thing. So I already said Song of Athaglir. Not consistent with what we know happens with the Silmarils and what we know is the actual origin of Mithril. <clears throat> but I think there's an argument to be made that the elves in the Second Age, they don't know exactly what happened to the Silmarils yet. They will eventually because they write it down, mm-hmm. you know, it's in their histories and Bilbo records it and it becomes part of the Silmarillion, which we've read, right? But that's history is uh, the 2020. We know everything in retrospect. When they're in the middle of the history, at that point, there's an argument they don't know because um, Maedros and Magalor, they stole the Silmarils and went off on their own. And they were alone, presumably, when uh, I think Magalor threw himself into, uh, you know, fiery lava and Maedros threw 
or maybe it's the other way around, but Midas threw the Silmaril into the sea and then was wandering the beaches forever singing a song of lamentation. So how would anybody else know that those things actually happened? It's very possible that it's not discovered till later. So it would make sense that the elves would create myths and stories to try and make sense of, well, what happened to the Silmarils? And they come up with this story that there was a battle with a Balrog and it gets wrapped up in a tree. They come up with this story. And it's, it's a myth. It's just a myth. Mm. And Elrond is dubious of its legitimacy in that scene. He's like, it's just, you know, it's just a myth. It's not, <gasps> that would you know. make so much more sense. So I like that notion actually quite a bit. Mm. So the Song of Hithigler, it doesn't have to be true, whether it's just a myth of dubious um, uh, legitimacy or if it's um, Anatar's deception. So there are ways for it to exist in this story and really, really work and actually, you know, uh, advance, Uh, uh, fit. I feel better about it after this conversation. All right. Glad I could be of service. Yes, much better. I'm like, (laughs) okay, not as dumb as I thought it was. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it it is potentially lore breaking, but. The most important thing is it's executed well, I think. I think it's executed um, well. Yeah. And hopefully. narratively, it makes it sense. I, You know, I'm complaining about how it could potentially be a little bit reductive, but I don't think anybody who's a normal viewer who's not familiar with the lore is going to bat an eye. Oh, they're not this. spinning out about this, any of this. No, no. They don't care. It, it makes sense. There's, you know, you create, there's a time constraint, which creates pressure. There's a clear um, objective. And so they're going to encounter obstacles. I do think objective. I'll like, be interested to hear from the newbies because I do think if you're a newbie, it's confusing. Why do they need Mithril? How does that help them? I think that part is confusing just from a purely filmmaking standpoint. How does that help them oh. not fade? Okay. Like if well, I were totally new to the lore, that would confuse me. So I'll be interested. Right. To hear. I think the explanation is there, but it is kind of buried. It's like buried. we learned about the two trees mm-hmm. and we learned about that the Silmarils captured the light of the two trees. But it's like you get one reference of the significance of the trees and one reference of the Silmarils having the light of the trees. And then now there's one reference to the Silmaril being like the progenitor of Mithril. So like they would really have to be paying attention to catch all those dominoes, right? So, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I think from a filmmaking standpoint, that could have been clearer, but perhaps we shall address that on a future newbie panel. Um, For now, I feel like we have uh, covered most of this episode. It was great. I'm I'm fully in it now, fully submerged. Can't wait for the next one. Yeah, I'm really having a good time. And I I enjoy talking about what I like in the show. I enjoy talking about what I don't love so much, but I'm enjoying it. Of course, yes. I hope... I hope if our podcast can do one thing, it is show how people can be critical of something and still enjoy it. And we are, and, you know, right. We're looking talk at about it. things they don't like in a, in a way that's fun, you know. Right. Um, and again, this is through the lens of adaptation. We are book nerds. So we obviously have our criticisms. But overall, you know, it's a great watch. We're having a good time. We spend a lot of time talking about it and I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's all for now. We're going to have our stream with Fellowship of Fans. And we have Alan Sisto from the Prancing Pony podcast joining us Woo! on the lore panel, which is uh, I'm particularly excited about. We've had great guests all along, but Alan Sisto was, I think, the first Tolkien content creator that I uh, started paying attention to when I really started digging into um, when I came out of my my hobbit hole where I was enjoying Tolkien all by myself and started you know, looking in, at stuff in the internet and enjoying other people's creation. Uh, Alan Sisto and Charm Marchese were the first two that I really started following. So I'm excited to right. chat with him on the lower panel. Um, so it's, it's going to be really exciting. So exciting. Don't forget to check out our sister podcasts, 
Watch Party Wheel of Time. They're on hiatus, but you still got plenty of back catalog to, to get through before the Wheel of Time comes up again. And a Watch Party of Ice and Fire. They are crushing it. I'm giving all of my love and attention to Lord of the Rings, but I'm still watching House of the Dragon every Sunday, and I'm still listening to their podcast, and it is so good. They're doing such a good job of, of deconstructing it. It is, dare I say, the best companion podcast to House of the Dragon, in my humble opinion. You know what? Honestly, it's not just us trying to promote our own podcast. It really is good. Like, I've listened to a number of Game of Thrones podcasts. They're doing something, like, a little different. Special. There's deep analysis. I I would dare say it is probably the best um, that I've heard, or one, at least one of the best. Well, they there you have it, really folks. You heard it here. <laughs> anyway, so go check them out. And if you would mind, if you enjoy what we're doing here, please do give us a like and share us on social media. We love interacting with people, and we want to reach as many folks as we can because that's a part of the fun. But until next time, may the hair on your toes never fall out.